You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Just over 21 years ago that Bree and I met, in the fall of 2000, we both were eligible and applied for this scholarship at Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. We both got selected to come and do kind of a Hunger Games style uh, interview. Uh, there was like eight of us together and four scholarships, and they just sort of like put us through these like interviews and like group projects, and we knew that we were competing with each other, which is not good for a group project. But uh, to, to, be, to know that you have to try to somehow demonstrate leadership, but then you're also in this group where you have to work as a team, and it, uh, it worked out okay. But uh, um, anyway, I l- come to find out later, because Bree and I then struck up a friendship later, obviously, and um, she was not particularly impressed with me on that day, which is weird, which is weird. I, apparently, I'm kind of an acquired taste. But as you look back and just, uh, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately as our family has gone through some changes and stuff of like, if you were to go back to that day, and someone were just to go, hey, 21 years from now, you two are going to be matched up. You're not going to be competing with each other. You're going to be teaming up. And you're gonna, this is what your life will look like 20 years later, 21 years later. Uh, I think it would be kind of surprising probably to both of us. You just don't know what's coming. I love that about weddings in many ways is that, is that you know, this, you're taking vows and there's, you're kind of standing there going, man, we have no idea what's coming right? We have no idea what's coming. And if we knew, maybe we would reconsider our decision, but that's part of, part of life, right? Is that you have these, uh, the, the, the future is open to, uh, to, to all the possibilities. God doesn't reveal all that to us. And so we make commitments and covenants together. And then you get to the funerals and you begin to reflect back on a life that has been completed. And so we have both of those things today, both a funeral and a wedding. We have godly Sarah, passing away at the age of 127. And then in the very next chapter, we have the introduction of Rebecca being brought as a, a new godly woman brought into the family of faith, a new matriarch that's brought into the family. So we have both funeral and, uh, and wedding at the same time. And you just wonder if Sarah and Abraham, the first time they met, and then as, as they got married, if she had any idea, there's no way she had any idea what the next hundred years of her life and marriage would look like, right? And so as we think just a few moments today about the life of Sarah as it comes to an end and we begin to see this narrative transition from Abraham and Sarah to the next generation, the promise moves on to the next generation, um, it's just uh, important for us to reflect and think about a life lived. This is not a story, this is an actual person and people. And as we come to the completion of this, the honor of Sarah and the honor and godliness of Rebecca are highly featured in these two chapters. These are the, this first chapter is not super long, chapter 23. Chapter 24 is the longest in Genesis, 67 verses. And so we're actually going to walk through the text because it takes 14 minutes just to read these two chapters. So instead of having someone up here reading that, which would be great and edifying and important, I'm going to actually read through it and then pause in places and just take you on a kind of a guided tour through this. So we'll go through chapter 23 first and look at the death and burial of Sarah and what we can glean from that. And then we'll work through chapter 24 where Rebecca is found and Isaac. It's just a really sweet chapter. We'll walk through that. So it'll be kind of a two-part sermon. The first one will be a little shorter than the second part. Uh, but just so you can follow along. And it'd be good to have the, a Bible open so that you can read along and see the words for yourself um, as we go through this. In the brown Bibles, it's page 16. In the more reddish Bibles, it's page 20. Um, and I can't remember what it is in the... Uh, it's 50... No, I don't know what it is in the journal. I'm not going to take the time. You can find it. So here we go. Let's start in Genesis chapter 23. A godly woman lost and buried. And just think of the life of Sarah. Probably married as a young woman, maybe a hundred years of marriage. Can you imagine that? We celebrate anniversaries at 50 years. And that was like, she was married to him for a long time before they even got the call of God. And then she was called when he was 75 and she was 65 to relocate. And then she dies at age 127, which is 62 years of wandering in the promised land with a husband that's been a bit up and down. First Peter 3 tells us that we should honor Sarah. And in some ways we should be like Sarah in that she was willing to follow her husband's call. She was willing to submit to him and, and, and support him in all of these ways. So Sarah is highly honored, and we ought to see that and think about that as Sarah passes off the scene. Uh, chapter 23, verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, or Hebron, in the land of Canaan. 
And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So this is actually the first time that we have a woman's death recorded. We've had a lot of genealogies and a lot of men dying. But this is the first time that we have a woman dying, which is significant. Because she's, she's the matriarch. She's the original um, matriarch of the promise that God has given. And there's this honoring of her in the scriptures here. Uh, she's the only one that has her age of death, at death, recorded. The only woman in the scriptures that that's true of. It's the first burial in the Bible. 62 years of sojourning, 37 years as a mom. She had, her, she had Isaac at age 90, and now she's 127. And, uh, and so this is just think about the life of Sarah and, uh, and the honor that she is due here as she has been a carrier, a birther of the promise of Isaac. And so in verse 3, And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, Now remember, Abraham doesn't own anything in the promised land yet. That promise has still not yet fully been realized. The son is here. He's now 37. But the land, the land promise has not quite come to full fruition. And so he has nowhere to bury Sarah. Does he go back home to, or does he stay there? What is he going to do? So Adam, Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me, Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of the field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. So then we enter into this negotiation. Abraham is negotiating for a burial place in the promised land with the Hittites. The Hittites are descendants of Ham, Cain, and then Het, Hittites, Hettites. So they are actually under the curse. Remember, there's the curse back in, um, in uh, is it Genesis nine. I think it's Genesis nine or eight, eight or nine, somewhere in there where there's this curse on Canaan and Canaan is, uh, is under the curse. And so Abraham, who is a, uh, uh, of the, of, uh, of the man of the promise, the man of, of God's redemption is having to negotiate with these Hittites who are Canaanites and, uh, and they don't want to sell. So this seems very charitable, but this is middle Eastern bartering. Oh no, let's, just, we'll just let you bury your dead in one of our caves. They don't really want to surrender property. They don't want to acknowledge, they, they know that Abraham has a lot of wealth, he's a man of regard, but it seems like as you read through this that there's a little bit of hesitancy on their part to legitimize Abraham's claim to the land. And so it seems charitable, but it's actually, I think, a negotiation tactic here. They don't want to sell any of the land. They don't want to give validation to this. Just let your, just bury your wife forever in one of our tombs. But he insists, I want to pay full price for a burial spot, and I want the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to Ephron. So now in verse 10, there's this negotiation between Abraham and Ephron. And here's what it is. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. Now just listen how, how flowery this is, right? No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it in the sight of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Sounds very charitable. Sounds very nice. But if you just give it to Abraham, a generation or two, you could probably take it back, right? And so Abraham is not willing to settle for this. <clears throat> just like he wasn't willing to take the offerings of the king of Sodom, Back in chapter 13, um, he also is not willing to, um, to, uh, to take the charity of these godless Hittites. He said to Ephraim, Ephraim uh, I'm sorry, verse 12, Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give you the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. So Abraham wants a real transaction. He wants a real full price legal claim in which to bury his dead. 
Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? A couple rich guys, 400 shekels might be what it's worth. Bury your dead. Verse 16, Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So no haggling. This seems to be a pretty high price. We don't really know because it's hard to go change rate and all that kind of stuff. But if you just look at other places in scripture where shekels are used to purchase things, in 2 Samuel 24, 24, David buys the whole temple mount for 50 shekels. The whole temple mount and this little cave and this little field with some trees in it is being sold for 400, 800 times or eight times. So this seems like an exorbitant price. In Jeremiah 32, 9, Jeremiah builds a, buys a field for 17 shekels. So this 400 shekel price is exorbitantly high. Uh, 1,500 years later, Omri buys all of Samaria, which is like buying a whole state, for 6,000 shekels. Two talents, 6,000 shekels. So you can buy almost a whole state for just 10 times what, or, or so, what he is paying. That's in 1 Kings 16, 24. So it seems like he's getting taken advantage of here. They know he wants to bury his dead. They know Abraham's reputation. And they've tried kind of doing that. Just let him bury your dead. We just don't want to give you any land. Oh, let's just throw out a price that's so crazy and just see what he does. And Abraham doesn't barter. He just pays the price because the promised land is worth so much to him. And to be able to bury his wife in the promised land, you really can't put a price on that for him. So this is Abraham investing in the promise. And he's not worried about the cost of that. Whatever it takes to get a legitimate claim to the promised land, he is willing to pay. Verse 17, So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites. Before all who went into the, the gate of the city, which is sort of like court. This is sort of like making it legally. To do business in the court is to do legal business before the court. Verse 19. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave in, of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field of the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. So he pays this high price and he acquires it. And this last little section, verses 17 through 20, almost looks like a receipt. It's almost written in sort of legal, formal deed of sale, right? This is sort of his, he's got the deed to the land. He's got it in writing. He has paid a full price. He's paid such a high price that no one would be able to challenge this later, right? No one would be able to challenge this a couple of generations later going, well, that really wasn't a fair price. We're going to reclaim that land. No, now... He, so, so Abraham is really clever in, in many ways here. He's, he, he's investing in the promise and he's doing it in such a way that it's, it's irrevocable. It's, it's, it's clear. He is now, as a man of faith, not willing to take his wife back. We're not going back to our old life. We're not going to bury Sarah in that place. We are making an investment in the promise of God here, now. And we're not trying to get it on the cheap. We're doing so generously. He's burying his most precious, the most precious person in his whole life, who he spent probably over 100 years with. I'm investing her in the promise because this is our place. This is our home. And I'm willing to pay whatever price it takes to make sure that this is our possession forever, for generations. You see, the heart of Abraham, the heart of faith, He's got a proof of purchase. It's legally acquired. It's at a price that no one could challenge. And now he has possession somewhat of the promised land, at least a little bit of it. So just a few things I think we can take away from this chapter. Just three quick things. His home is where God's promise is, right? Home is where God's promise is. It never crosses Abraham's mind to go back to Ur and bury it near family. No, this, where God's promises, that's our home. That's where we belong. We belong here. And yes, we don't have the land, but the promise hasn't come true in full yet. 
But this is our home, is wherever God has promised us, where he has called us, this is where we are. Missionaries for generations have often taken their own caskets with them when they go back in the day. Back when you would ride a ship for months and get there and the the odds of you coming back are very slim, so you take your casket with you. Where God's promise and call is, that's home. And Abraham invests so much in this. This cave at Machpelah is going to play a big, is going to be really important throughout the rest of the Old Testament because this is where the patriarchs are buried. This promise hasn't come to fruition in one lifetime. This promise is going to go beyond lifetimes. And so this, this is the beginning of this faith of Abraham that's going to be passed down to generations that God will keep his promises and that there is a promise that's, that goes beyond death. Abraham is still trusting God. Isaac and Ishmael are going to bury Abraham here next week in this same cave as an act of faith. Isaac and Rebekah are going to be buried here in Isaiah 49. Or I'm sorry, not Isaiah. Genesis 49, we're going to find out that Isaiah, Isaac and Rebekah are going to be buried here. Jacob is going to be, and, and Leah are going to be buried here. Joseph buries Jacob here in Genesis chapter 50. And even Joseph insists, take my bones with you. So this cave, this burial plot, becomes a symbolic understanding that God keeps his promises and that there is, there is fulfillment of the promise beyond death. So, this gener- so we see that. This cave of Machpelah is going to be kind of the down payment. It's going to be the thing that the next few generations look forward to. Trusting God, going, I am going to be buried in that cave one day too, because that's where God's promise is. That's where he said we will live. Second thing is that generous investment in the promises of God is never a mistake, right? It's never a mistake. It looks weird to the world that we would invest our time and our energy and our money in things like the church and missions and benevolence right? That we would go without things, that we'd live with a little smaller house or go with a little older vehicle than we could actually afford in order that we might have more to be able to generously invest in the promise. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so today we're not investing in a plot of land somewhere in the world. We're investing in a people, God's church, that is promised to go on forever, right? So Abraham is making a generous investment. It almost looks like he's getting ripped off or swindled. But in his heart, in his mind, this is an act of faith in the promise of God. And that's the same thing that we can learn as well, is that we need to invest ourselves in the promises of God in a way that looks strange, that's different from the rest of the world. That's true financially. That's true of our time. That's true of our affections. It's that there should be something special about the promises of God in the New Testament, the gospel and the church and the mission of God around the world that gets a special priority, that we're not willing, we're not going to haggle. We're not going to try to do it on the cheap. We're going to be lavish and expensive and generous in our investment in the promises of God. And then thirdly, for generations, they will look to this cave and know that God keeps his promise even beyond death. 18 miles north of this tomb will be another tomb, a tomb just outside of Jerusalem, In the Old Covenant, you would look to this tomb, you would look to these folks, you would look to this and go, man, our God keeps his promises and our ancestors are buried there. So we know that that's the place. But there's another tomb that's empty that tells us that there is promise of life after death. Jesus Christ was buried in a cave, not in Machpelah, but just outside Jerusalem. And his resurrection tells us, shows us, that God's promises do come true, that there is promise of life after death. So there's a little bit of a gospel echo here as they look to this tomb as a symbol of hope, but it's a filled tomb. We as new covenant people look to a tomb as well, but it's an empty tomb, that there is resurrection after life after death, that there's life after death. And so we, they look in promise for a promise beyond death. And already, God has already kept his promises to us, Anna, not yet. There's still more promises to come to come to fruition. And they're burying, Abraham's burying her in faith. We also look to an empty tomb of the new covenant that Christ has died, rose again, and that he is coming. The already and the not yet for us as well. It's that God has not yet given us the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth, but we look to an empty tomb 
in the hopes that beyond death, there is a promise still to be fulfilled to us, the new people of God, the fulfillment of all of those old promises, the things that Abraham and Sarah were looking forward to are fulfilled in Christ. And we look at hope and hope to him. Genesis 24. So sermon number two, that was the short one. All right, here's the long one. Longest chapter in Genesis. So hang in there as we walk through this. This is such a sweet story. This is such an amazing story. We were actually introduced to Rebecca just a couple chapters earlier uh, after the sacrifice of Isaac story tagged at the very end of chapter 22 is this little tiny kind of genealogy of this other of this brother of Abraham and we get introduced to Rebecca and then it just sits kind of dormant and so that's coming back because now there's some significance to it and let's look at Genesis chapter 24 so if, if Genesis chapter 23 is a godly woman lost and buried in Sarah that we're to honor and Abraham honors and it's a faithful forward-looking investment in the promise now we see a new matriarch entering into the picture. We see a new honored woman who is going to step in and be the carrier of the promise to the next generation. We see a godly woman found and married. See, that rhymes, doesn't it? A godly woman lost and buried, a godly woman found and married. Genesis chapter 24. Now Abraham was old. That's kind of an understatement. Well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. That's sort of a weird thing to do, Abraham. Must I then take uh, your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your, to your offspring I will give this land, I will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So these are the last recorded words of Abraham. And they're filled with faith. He's realizing he's just buried his wife. He's realizing that his time is coming quickly. He will die in the next chapter. And so he knows that the promise now needs to move on to Isaac. But, you know, this whole promise is about offspring as numerous as the stars and as numerous as the sand. And he's just doing the math going, ah, he's probably going to need help with the whole pre-procreation part. So let's get a wife for him. But he's full of faith, he's trusting in God, and he makes this very amazing request of this servant. Now this servant is someone who's been around for a while. This could be Eleazar of Damascus. This could be. Because he's entrusting this to the care of this faithful servant, the oldest of his household. Uh, so we may have met him already, actually, back in chapter, is that chapter 15? Chapter 15, I think. And makes him swear to go and get a wife. Now, don't take Isaac back because we are not, I don't want there to be any temptation of us going back to our old ways. So the promise has to stay here because home is where God's promise is. And he said, stay here. But the women that are here are Canaanites and they're under a curse. And so I want to be faithful to God, not to mix the true faith of God with pagan beliefs, right? So Abraham is trying to make sure that this is done right. The, a woman of right character, of right integrity, of right faith is brought in. Now, this is a big development for Abraham. I'm wondering if Abraham hasn't thought about the whole Hagar situation, you know, like trying to use the Egyptian woman to bring about the process, that, to bring about the promise, that didn't work. So we're not doing that again. I don't want Isaac to fall into the same problems that I had in trying to make the most expedient, efficient thing happen. The goal is not to just get any woman to bring about children, but the right one, the one whom God has prepared, the one whom God has called. So go back to my people, people who know my God, know the promise, who would be willing to come here. And so this is going to be a big ask because he's got to go. This servant has to go find a needle in a haystack. He has to find someone 
that's of Abraham's family, who is also willing, just based on this invitation, to relocate and come. This is almost like an Abraham-like call. So when Rebecca gets this, it's going to be not that different than the faith that's required of, of, of Abraham to go and lead kind of blindly to follow this God that calls. Now, the whole hand under my thigh thing, that's sort of an ancient agreement. And uh, it's maybe a sign of submission, so that you're kind of under the weight of someone. It's also not too far from the place of circumcision. So maybe it's also a swear by the promise not to do this. And Eliezer does. He takes this oath. So that happens again back, I think it's in Genesis 49 or 48. We'll see this agreement again. Just be glad that when we make agreements, we just shake hands. All right. So it is sort of weird, but different cultures have different things that are going on. And this clearly seems to be something that Abraham goes, this is really important to me. He really wants this servant to understand how significant this is, that the plan of God is resting on your faithfulness, servant. I'm entrusting the whole plan of God on the faithfulness of this servant. And the servant seems to get it and seems to have a regard for Abraham and for God. And so he does. He agrees to do this. He has some questions, right? What if she's not agreeable? Well, we're not going to coerce anyone. She needs to come willingly. There's no coercion. God will be at work and God has been at work in some woman's life over here that we don't know yet. And we're going to go in faith that God has already provided. We're going to be faithful to his word. We're going to be faithful to his process. We're not going to take the shortcut. We're going to go the hard way, but we're going to trust that on the other end, God has also been working. That God has been working in someone's heart and you'll be able to just give the message and she will respond to the message. And if no one does, you're released from it. You do not have to make this happen. We're going to trust the Lord to do this. It's a really remarkable act of faith by Abraham and the servant. It's just a really sweet chapter. All right, let's move on to the next, verse 9. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. All right, so this is a big deal. Verse 10, then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. Nahor. So we have an oath taken. He's, he agrees to the, to the deal. He agrees to swear to do this. And then elaborate action. He takes 10 camels. That's a ton of camels. At this time, camels are like, it's like the Cadillac Escalade. This is like him rolling with, with two, you know, with 10, 20, 23 Cadillac Escalades. Like this is quite the entourage. And he's taking all of these resources with him. Now, Abraham just spent a lot of resources to bury one godly woman, and now he's collecting all of his resources to go hard after the next one, right? He's going with great generosity. He's going with great investment. He's try, not trying to do it on the cheap. This is, this is the most important thing in the world. This is the promise of God. It requires all of our resources. It requires our very best, and so Eleazar heads out and travels anywhere from, depending on what route he took, he's going back, all the way back to Mesopotamia, 450 to 900 miles, somewhere in there, depending on the route he takes. This is at least a month of travel, maybe more, to just in the hopes that you can find a woman that happens to be of the right family, who happens to be of the right character, who happens to be willing to like be up for this. So it's just, can you imagine how much effort and energy is being put into making sure that Isaac gets the wife that God has chosen for him? Verse 11. And he made the camels kneel down outside of the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So this is a really godly servant. He is praying. This is not something that he can do on his own, and he knows that. So he's not passive. He's active, right? He, he has done a lot to try to pursue this, but he's also trusting that God is going to have to work too. So you get this, like, this, 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 this dual, like, faith in God is not passivity. It's also not making it happen yourself, right? 
And so you get that in this servant. And he prays based on the promise. So he's using God's past faithfulness, going, I trust you in this. This is the God. You're the God of Abraham. You're the God who keeps his promises. We are trusting that you're going to keep your promise here. And so I'm going to take action, but it's not going to work unless you work, God. It's an awesome prayer. It's an awesome prayer of faith that Eleazar is both taking action, taking initiative, making an investment, and yet also trusting totally that God is going to have to do this in God's sovereignty and providence. Praying based on God's covenant, praying on past faithfulness, asking God to do what only God can do. Verse 15. Before he had finished speaking to God, behold, Rebekah, who was born of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, so this is his brother's grandson, Abraham's brother's, I'm sorry, granddaughter. The young woman uh, who came out with her water jar on her shoulder, the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all the camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. So he gets an immediate answer to prayer. And just think about this. These camels have just traveled hundreds of miles. They're thirsty. A camel can drink anywhere from 15 to 20 gallons of water. Most likely, Rebecca has a jar that's maybe two and a half to three gallons. So just do the math. Let's go on the conservative side. 15 gallons of water for these camels that have been on a journey. There's 10 of them, 150 gallons, and she's got a three-gallon jar. How many trips does she have to make? Like a billion. <laughs> 50, right? 50. And he's sitting there, and he's watching, and he goes, this is remarkable that just at the request, she would come and she would work like this. And he's looking for a certain kind of character. That the next matriarch has to have a certain kind of Sarah-like character, a willingness to serve and to be hardworking and to be industrious. And so he just waits and he prays and he watches. He goes, is this possibly? If she's of the right family, this could be the one. Maybe God has provided which, while she was still praying, or while he was still praying, God had already been preparing Rebecca to come out at that exact same time, right? God's fingerprints are all over this. We don't really see God explicitly acting, but we just see through the ordinary experiences of life that faith-filled initiative God uses, right? With prayer, with faithfulness to his word to bring some things together. Verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel, that's significant. And two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the God of Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. So he gives this woman for her, for her graciousness, for her hard work, for her kindness to him, he gives her enough gold and jewelry that is the equivalent of a year's wages. Like just lavishes her which she didn't do it for the money, but she had, but he rewards her. He compensates her. <clears throat> and then she extends hospitality to him. And that's a big entourage to care for. This is a big ask. This is not just let me sleep on your couch for a night. This is a big ask. And she is willing to give it. And then notice who gives the credit is the servant gives credit to God for being faithful to his master, right? The servant might be wanting to pat him, you know, we might be wanting to pat ourselves on the back. I nailed this. I am awesome. I am in for a raise. He goes, no, God did this. I took action. I prayed. I did what I was supposed to do, but God did the work, right? 
God's the one that brought this together. And this is clearly his work. This is his faithfulness to his promise that has brought this thing together. And so he gives God all the glory. Verse 28. Then the young woman ran and told her mother, mother's household about these things. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Keep track of that name. That guy's coming back into the story later. Laban ran towards the men of the spring as soon as he saw the ring and bracelets on his sister's arms. So you see the character of Laban already. He's noticing the bling. That's going to be significant in his interactions with Jacob in a few chapters. So he's of a different kind of character than Rebecca, right? Rebecca is this way because this is who she is and got rewarded for it. Laban is going, ah, I see money. This, there's an opportunity here. All right, just keep that in mind. Log that away. Uh, thus, uh, as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He came... He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come, O blessed one of the Lord, why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with them. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. So this is a guy who is, who is focused on his mission. I didn't come here to relax and eat. I came to get a wife for my master's son. I am under oath. And so even before his physical needs, he's like, I have, I have a responsibility to say something here, right? So this is just, again, showing the faithfulness of this servant. And then he goes on in verses 34 through 48. We won't read all of it here. He basically recounts the entire chapter word for word. He just gives a testimony of going, my master asked me to make an oath to come here. And then I prayed this thing. And then before I was done praying, she came and then she did this. And then I did this. And then it turns out she's this and this and this. And he just lays it out very manner of factly. He takes all the pressure off. Like if you're agreeable to this, great. If not, I'm able to move on. He doesn't embellish. He doesn't manipulate. He doesn't, he doesn't, um, he doesn't do any of that stuff. He just simply lays out the facts, the testimony, the work of God, and then puts it on them, which is just a great, a great model. Like he's just, he's just trusting that God is at work and he doesn't need to manipulate. He doesn't need to embellish. The story itself is compelling enough. He just needs to tell the story and ask if they will respond. And then you get to verse 49. So the integrity of the servant to make sure that he is not, that he is doing so in an upright manner. Right? This is the work of God. I'm calling, considering, asking you to come be a part of it. But it's, it's it, the ball's in your court, which is, a good, I guess, a good example of us when we share the gospel. We don't need to modify it. We don't need to change it. Just talk about the work of God, and then people have to respond for themselves, right? Right? So it's an almost verbatim account of the first part of the chapter. Verse 49, then... If you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left, that I can go looking for another woman. But this one seems to fit. The, then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, good or bad. Behold, Rebekah is before, her, before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. So they're persuaded. Laban and Bethuel clearly attribute this to the work of Yahweh. And they go, we, we'll sign off on this. Verse 52, when Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments. This is kind of a bride price. And gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. And when they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Like, it's one night, and he's got to get back. He's on a mission, right? No time to celebrate. We got to get home. Like this, the job is not complete until I get her back. And so this servant is just relentlessly faithful. He also, uh, let's see, verse 55. Her brother and her mother said, let the woman remain for us a little while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. Now they're starting to hedge a bit, right? Well, wait a minute. Give us a little more time, which seems reasonable and is to some extent. But knowing the character of Laban, this might be, we might be able to get a little more out of this. Because he'll do that with Jacob later. He'll do that with Jacob later, of going, work seven years for this one. And then, oh, you know what? Oh, we have this whole thing. We should have said that. You've got to work another seven. 
So this whole idea of delaying and sort of is sort of in the character a little bit of Laban, and the servant's not going to fall for it. No, nope, I got to go. It's now or never. And so he doesn't fall for the trick here. And but he said to them, "Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master." They said, "Let us call the young woman and ask her." And they asked Rebecca and said to her, "Will you go with this man?" And she said, "I will go." Just such faithful words, right? She sees the work of God. She's going to go meet a man she's never met before. And just like the call of Abraham in chapter 12, to go based on promise, based on the call of God, to go to a place she's never been. She says, I will go. Verse 59, so when so they sent Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, listen to this, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Which is way underestimating the promise that's going to come, right? That sounds like a pretty lavish promise, but it's actually going to be far better than that. So a lavish bride price, maybe negotiation for extra time, hard to know from Laban. The servant is urgent, urgent in his obedience, 30 days of travel at least, one night and then get back on the road. We got to go. And then Rebecca's remarkable decision to faithful courage and a family blessing that's going to be wildly superseded. Verse 61, Then Rebekah and her young woman arose and went and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac has re- had returned from Beer Laha Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. So this sweet first encounter where their eyes kind of meet. And they kind of do the equation. And then Rebecca is the kind of person that she then covers herself, which is Middle Eastern. This is like, I am preparing myself for my wedding, right? I'm veiling myself. I'm coming with modesty and appropriateness, propriety and honor to meet my husband. And so she does. She comes, which just speaks so more, all the more of her willingness to trust in the Lord and her desire to go about this in the most honorable way that she can. And Isaac asks questions. And the servant gives the story of how God has provided a wife for him. So Isaac kind of does his due diligence. She's doing what's appropriate and honorable as well. And you just have this sweet meeting together. Verse 67. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. And she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. That's significant. Being brought into the tent of Sarah means that, yeah, Sarah's passed away, but now there's a new matriarch. The promise is moving to the next generation and it's all been done because of God's provision. Yes, humans have had to make, take action and move, but it's been God's providence. And we have someone who is godly, this godly woman who is marked by hospitality and hardworkingness. She comes and she's brought into the family and Isaac loves her and there's comfort because God has kept his promises and God has provided in all the right ways. God's kindness and comfort and a new matriarch to take the promise to the next stage. So just a few things that we can take away from this. There's so much in these passages and we're running out of time. So just a few bottom line things for us to think about. Is we see here a beautiful example of proactive, uncompromising faith in God. Right? It's a beautiful example of proactive. They're not just sitting out, sitting around waiting for Rebecca to just fall off a tree or something. Right? No, they're taking action. So faith is not opposed to action. In fact, it prompts action. Faith without works is dead, right? And there's uncompromising. They're unwilling to take the shortcut of going, just pick a, pick a girl in the town over there, right? No, we, we don't want to compromise God's presence, God's plan, God's promise. And so proactive, uncompromising faith in God. 
it is almost like you're seeing a living embodiment of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Right? That's exactly what happened with this servant, right? It doesn't always work out that straight line for us, but it's nice to know. God does do that sometimes, right? When we trust in him. Secondly, it's a wonderful model of individual godliness and ideal marriage pursuit. It is a sweet love story. And while I wouldn't want to press this on everyone who's pursuing marriage to do exactly according to this protocol, but there is a a nice model of what it looks like to look for someone who, if you're desiring to get married one day, who's part of the family of faith, who has a certain type of character and service about them. To not be to, be, to be willing to wait, to be willing to go the extra mile, to be willing to be patient, to trust that the Lord will bring those right things at the right time if it's his will. Does that make sense? So you do see, I think sometimes this passage can get pressed really hard as like the template for how to find a spouse. It's a good template. If you're going to press one, this is not a bad one. But in general, there's principles, I think, about prayer, about trust, about what kind of character, about why... Um, why proactive, uncompromising faith in God to provide is going to work out better in the long run. So, um, so I just I do think that there are some things to think about. That if you're someone who is pursuing marriage, there's some beautiful principles in this passage that I think are really important and helpful, and demonstrate faith in that pursuit. Can't promise that it's going to work out this way, but there is some some godly principles there. And then lastly, it's a stunning picture of our salvation through Christ. Here's, here's just a quote from a blog post. I'm going to read parts of it. Um, but this is just neat to see how um, the idea of a father going to the effort and expense to acquire a bride from a foreign land for his son is has gospel echoes to it. That the father chose us before the foundation of the world. And at the price of his son to acquire a bride for himself... The marriage of Isaac and Rebekah doesn't begin with the love of the couple, but with the choice of a father to secure a bride for his beloved son. Once they were chosen, a great price was paid for the redemption to bring her back. And we, like Rebekah, are called to leave everything behind in order to preserve, to persevere, sorry, to persevere through pilgrimage in this life to our own wedding day. There will be a day when we meet eyes with our Savior. And we will come to him and he will receive us with love and affection. We will come to our own wedding one day to be celebrated in a promised country. Imagine for a moment a conversation Rebecca might have had with the Abraham servant around the campfire as they journeyed back. As she's wondering, like, what have I done? Right? I've wandered off with this stranger. I'm headed towards a guy I've never met before. And just imagine, this is not in the Bible, so don't put too much stock in this, but just imagine practically asking, her asking this servant, what is he like? Surely Rebecca would have asked a kind and good servant like this about the man she consented to marry. And we can imagine the servant would have answered something like this. Rebecca, the young man who is to be your husband had a most remarkable birth. An angel of God announced that he would be born for his birth And it was nothing less than a miracle. His mother, being both barren and beyond years of childbearing, but his birth was just as has been foretold by prophecy. And it was the occasion of a great goodwill, so much that he was named Isaac, or laughter, for all the joy that he would bring to the world. Great prophecies attended his birth, for God is to use his family to bring a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And though, although he was rejected by his brother, he is nonetheless the delight of his father, who is well pleased with his son. And even for a son so favored, there came a dreadful day when his father was told to offer up the beloved son on an altar of sacrifice. And so his father took him on a hard journey to the mountains of Moriah. They reached the appointed place on the third day after they had set out. Abraham then made known to Isaac that even though he was the hope of the world, The one through whom blessing would come to all the nations, he was nonetheless the sacrifice that God required. In obedience to the will of God and his father, Isaac humbly submitted to God's will and permitted himself to be bound for sacrifice. 
But at the last minute, God spared Isaac from the knife of Abraham, was willing to lift up his own son. On the third day, on that terrible trial, Isaac was delivered from death. And so, complete all his delight, his father Abraham, knowing that it is not good for a man to be alone, sent me to seek out the one whom God had chosen as a bride, worthy for so great a son. And you, precious daughter, are that chosen one. You will be great. You will be the great Abraham's daughter, an heir with Isaac of all that obtains this oath and covenant. Isaac's joy will be your portion forever, for God has already prepared his heart to delight in you. Your seed by this man will redeem the earth and triumph over the gates of all the enemies. This is the young man to whom you have been given, your heart already, the son beloved of the father, the son whom you have not seen, nonetheless you already love. And you see some gospel echoes in this thing already. That we are that one that is being called to enter into a relationship with the son who's paid an extraordinary price. And we're called in some ways to be like that servant and go to the wells, right? And go, hey, come. Come to this beloved son. Come to this one. And that's the picture that we have in Christ. The son of, the son of promise who paid a great price to come after us. If we repent and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, then we too are assembled into a bride, the church, that will one day, like Rebecca, complete this pilgrimage and stand before our Savior. So there are some gospel echoes in this story. And the call to us in the new covenant is to respond to Christ, to prepare ourselves for him, to call others to be part of that as well. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time together and this long, long passage. Thank you for the way that you are working out your promise. And while Abraham and Sarah didn't get to see the fulfillment of all of it, they still in faith invested themselves, their possessions, their hope in a, a promise that lasted beyond their lifetimes. And God, we thank you for the fulfillment of that in Christ. We thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you for the call to come and be part of the bride of Christ ourselves. So God, thank you for the reality, the historical reality of you keeping your faithful promise down through real human beings. And then we also thank you for the pictures of the greater reality, the greater wedding that is to come for those who trust in him. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for your kindness and your goodness in weaving this story together and for allowing us to be a part of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.